Welcome back to another edition of Two Steps Ahead Podcast. Two Steps Ahead Podcast, encouraging you to take your passion, make it happen, and let yourself be great. I'm Son Edom, and coming up on the show, we have a special guest joining us here today. One of the things that we've been kind of talking about on the show that I've mentioned is the fact that we oftentimes don't really recognize our military members and people that have served in the military. Sure, we have things like Memorial Day, Veterans Day, uh, specific dates like Pearl Harbor that we sit back and kind of reflect, and, and even nowadays like 9-11 that led us into Iraq and Afghanistan. And so I thought it'd be kind of cool to bring a, a special guest on, somebody who served our country in the military as a lieutenant in the United States Army, served a tour of duty over in Vietnam, was a Silver Star recipient, Bronze Star recipient, Purple Heart recipient as well. And that is my father, Stuart Edom. Thanks for being with us here today. Thank you, Sean. I want to- thank you, Sean. And I want to thank you that um, you have always honored and respected our veterans. So I appreciate that and say thank you. Okay, so let's get right to it because the Silver Star is one of the highest awards that you can uh, be awarded. You know, oftentimes we think of people winning awards or getting awards for, you know, doing great things. But the Silver Star is something that you are, I guess, nominated for by some other person that witnessed bravery on the part of you. So they would put your name in for the Silver Star and you were awarded the Silver Star. It was February 14th, Valentine's Day, 1968. If you wouldn't mind taking us back to that day, what happened? Okay, actually, February 14th is about two weeks after the Tet Offensive started of 1968, which that started on January 31st, so uh, February 14th is like two weeks later. Now, all the major South Vietnamese installations and cities were hit simultaneously on the Tet Offensive, January 31st of 1968. Initially most of the fighting forces were pulled back into the major cities. Likewise, we were. We were pulled back into Saigon, and now about two weeks later, the enemy had been pushed outside of the major cities, in this case, outside of Saigon, uh, a few miles, I don't know how many miles Hakman is from uh, Saigon, but the battle or that I was involved in on February 14th was in Hakman, Vietnam. So the enemy had been pushed out of the major cities into some of these outlining cities or towns. And our operation that day, we started in the morning. Our company commander sent us into different areas of the Hakman area. All of a sudden, I, who had the third platoon, and the uh, Lieutenant Isabel, who had the first platoon, we were operating kind of close together in one area. We got a call from the company commander that the second platoon was under heavy contact. The platoon leader, Lieutenant Williams, had already been killed along with some others, and so we were to react and get over there as quickly as we could. The first platoon took the lead, went down this road within the village town of Hakman, and all of a sudden we ran right into an ambush. And in the initial fire, the first platoon leader... Lieutenant Isabel, whom I graduated with from or with OCS, from OCS with him, we were in the same class. He was hit with an RPG round in the shoulder, and so he was killed almost instantly. My armored personnel carrier, APC, was hit in the initial burst of fire with a white phosphorus round, and I initially received white phosphorus burns on my back. This was all on the initial uh, fire that we received when they uh, sprang the ambush on us. So now we're all off on the ground, scrambling for cover. And so I'm trying to direct the men. My philosophy always was we got to get more bullets going the other way than they having at us. Because if we can get more bullets going at them, then we're going to be able to maneuver Whereas if we're pinned down because they got the heavier firefighter, you know, then we can't move. We're just pinned down until we're probably eventually annihilated. So anyway, I got my platoon setting back uh, fire in both directions. We were receiving small arms fire from both sides. 
uh, and we were inside a village setting. And being a the first somebody like the medic or someone from the first platoon had brought Lieutenant Isabel by us trying to get out of the ambush, and that's how I knew he was wounded and was no longer in command of the first platoon. So I would run back and forth between the first platoon and my platoon, trying to get the men, uh, you know, directing fire at the enemy. And of course, what we had to do was figure out a way how we could get out of it because we still needed to get over to where the uh, second platoon was pinned down, and they needed reinforcements. So that was so. Then our objective was just to get out of this ambush which thankfully we successfully did, and then worked our way around, and now we still had to uh, get to where the second platoon was, lay down enough fire for them so they could start maneuvering and get out. Now this happened probably, I'm going to say around 10 o'clock in the morning, and we did. it took us some time to get out of the ambush we were in, and then by the time we got over to where the second platoon was, and got them out, it was probably about 6 o'clock in the evening. So you were actually, at that point, commanding two platoons, both under heavy fire, both being ambushed, taking in a lot of casualties, at least with the second platoon, plus losing their leader. How do you stay composed in that type of situation? Because there's a lot of stuff going on, and on top of that, your life is on the line. How do you keep that composure to be able to not only control or to direct and command your own men, but then take on another platoon entirely and deal with them. Well, I think in my case, let me go back to when I first went into the Army. I had had two years of college, and the war, of course, was going on, and I decided that I wanted to go in the Army. Now, my dad and uncles were kind of at the age where they were too young for the First World War, but too old for the Second World War. So no one in our family really had any military experience. So I didn't, never grew up hearing stories about the military and really had no idea if I was going to like the Army or not. So instead of enlisting for either three or four years, I just dropped out of school because then right away, if you did not have a school deferment, they would draft you right away because if I was drafted, I knew I'd only have to serve two years if I didn't like the Army. But I liked the Army right away when I got in. I um, took tests for everything, like the test came along for, they said, did any of you play an instrument in high school? Of course, I had played the cornet, so I tried out for the cornet, and I passed, and I possibly could have uh, been in in an army band for two years. But I said, no, I want to be in the infantry. And then a test came along for, like, typist, and I had, had typing in high school, and I took the test for that and passed, and they prob- I possibly could have had the opportunity to be a clerk for two years. But I said, no, I don't want that. I want to be in the infantry. Um, see, my thinking was that if I was going to go into the Army, I did not want to be doing something I could do- be doing in civilian life, that I wanted to be in the Army. So my first choice was always, first of all, I would... I, I had decided to go in the Army. That's what I wanted. I decided that I wanted to be in the infantry. That's what I wanted if I was going to be in the Army. And then I also had the opportunity, because I, I had had two years of college, uh, you were able to take the test for OCS. So I took the test and thankfully passed, and I um, got orders after basic training an advanced infantry training to go to infantry OCS because that was my first choice there too. If I was going to be an officer, I wanted to be an infantry officer. So in answer to your question, you know, I've read several books by other Vietnam veterans and many of them have stated about, even though they were good soldiers, very good soldiers, uh, they stated how they just had a fear of first of all being drafted they had a fear of being in the infantry, and then they had a fear of going to Vietnam. And so being I wanted all those things, I didn't have any of that apprehension uh, or fear. Uh, and so when I got over to Vietnam, I just wanted to be the best platoon leader I could be, and I think I concentrated on 
you know, tactics. I concentrated on the situation we were in, making sure I knew where the men were, tried to know where the fire should get directed. So I just kind of concentrated on doing my job the best I could. And so consequently, uh, in a situation like that, that's just was kind of my attitude right from the start. So before we get back to Vietnam, your parents, my grandparents, what was the initial response? Because you mentioned they nobody in the family had been in the military. Um, and so obviously being the first person going into the military at a time where war is actually happening, what was their response? Um, I had no negative response, probably no encouragement uh, either. Uh, if that's what I wanted to do, they were willing to do. Dad didn't seem too concerned. Mom seemed a little more concerned. Uh, but, um, no, no. So, uh, uh, you know, they were fine with it. They really didn't encourage it, nor did they discourage it. Yeah. Cause it's one of those things where, especially grandma, whenever we'd be having at parades and things, whenever the military would go by, um, especially like in the Rose parade on uh, new year's day, we all as a family hit out to, uh, the Rose parade on Colorado Boulevard in Pasadena and the, you know, the Marines or the, um, the bands would go by for the military, whoever it was, it didn't matter. They were always, she was always one that was always cheering. She was one that was always saying, thank you for your service. And so I would imagine for someone who supported the military so much, it had to be kind of a little bit of an internal conflict with them to know that their son's going off to war and yet proud to have a son serve in the military at the same time, the motherly aspect of it, of a son heading off to war couldn't be something that was uh, easy for them to kind of deal with. Um, so how about uh, siblings? Same thing, same response with uh, Aunt Catherine and Uncle and, uh, Uncle Chuck? Yeah, let's see now. Um, well, actually, see, I didn't really have contact with them because I had been two years out in California on my own. So Kathy and Chuck really weren't around. So, yeah, so, I mean, I didn't get either negative or mm-hmm. really encouragement. No, I think, but just like you were saying, because the family was patriotic, you know, so from that sense... You know, they, they were happy, but at the same time, you know, I'm sure there's apprehension. Of course. Right. Yeah, of course. So going back to Vietnam, well, I guess first off, going to OCS, OCS in Panama, what was that like, the experience? Did that kind of pave the way? Because I would imagine that Panama is more like Vietnam than the United States, going through any type of camp, boot camp in the United States. I would imagine Panama is more equivalent to what you would experience in Vietnam. Did that help prepare you, not only as an officer, but just for the conditions of going to Vietnam? My OCS in Panama experience was major in preparing me. Um, First of all, the training at OCS was just excellent. Uh, The instructors, I don't know, had to be some of the best instructors. The equipment they had there, the classrooms they had there, uh, what they put us through was excellent. However, did I feel qualified to go to Vietnam as a platoon leader upon graduation? No. But then I got sent to Panama. And, of course, one apprehension for somebody growing up growing up in Minnesota is you're going to go to the tropics or tropical climate. You're going to go to a jungle situation. Well, in Panama, I was in the heart of the tropics and in far denser jungle than anything I ran into at all in Vietnam. Now, there may have been some dense jungles in Vietnam, but not in the area where I operated. And so spending six months in Panama as a rifle platoon leader, uh, practicing war games every day, ambushes, night patrols, night ambushes, uh, defenses, everything having to do with the infantry, in a tropical climate, in a jungle, that took away any apprehension I had for you know, going to Vietnam in situations like I would have been completely unfamiliar with had I not had that experience. Um, oh, I was just going to say one thing, one other thing about it. I forget what it was. Anyway, But one of the cooler stories that you tell is when you're talking about those uh, different things that you had to go through, there was a story that you tell about the bus, hiding on the bus. They sent you out. If you got caught, then you became like a prisoner of war. This is in Panama. And so it was an exercise. And so you were able to utilize a bus to not get caught. Can you tell us that story? <laughs> that, when I was in Panama, I went through the jungle expert course. And the last, and that was the most, for me, the most tiring two weeks of training that I had. That was very rigid training. And of course, it, you were outside for two weeks in the 
rainy, wet jungle uh, down there in Panama. And the last two or three days was an obstacle course. And so we started out at one point, had to get to another point some meters, you know, hundreds of meters away. And in between these two points, which was all jungle, were aggressors. And these were the enemy. And what we had to do was try to get from point A to point B without being captured by the aggressors. And if we and that would have been over a two-day span, where you would have even had to spend the night out there. Um, and if you did get captured by the aggressors, you would have been put into a prisoner of war camp. And in the way they had it set up there in the jungle, anybody that got captured got stripped naked. They had to low crawl through mud and mud puddles and water. They would sit them up on a tin chair and ask them questions. And if you didn't answer, they'd crank the telephone, which they had hooked up to the metal on the chair, and yet they'd get a shock. And so there was, you know, some consequences to getting caught. And one thing they told us to make sure we never do, because there was a a river on one side of this area that we had to traverse through and a road on the other side. And the one thing they warned us about, whatever you do, don't think you're going to go down the road and get a ride down the road in anybody. Well, (laughs) so we were broken up into three-man teams. So... I and the two men in our team, what we did, we decided to go over to the road. We flagged down a Panamanian kind of a bus going through. It was Actually, it was a truck uh, with an open bed in the back and benches along the side that they were sitting on. It did have a canvas cover over the top. And, and we couldn't speak Spanish or anything, but some way we worked it out where we crawled underneath their benches so anything that bags that they were carrying with their feet were all covering us up. And then we go down the road, and sure enough, they come to checkpoints. And, but we got by, and so we were like the first ones to make it in. We made it in a matter of a few hours, and uh, so we didn't suffer the hunger or anything else that was, uh, you know, that's so many of the others. Uh, but anyway, they, they still had to drop us off at a point some, you know, quite a ways away from where we had to check in but we had already gotten by the majority of the aggressors, and so the rest of the way we were able to make it in and get in in a matter of a few hours. Now, going back to Vietnam, so you go through Panama, you're through OCS, you're through all the training, you get to Vietnam. You know, February 14th happens, you go through all that. Then at some point you find out that you're, I guess, nominated or someone had put you up for the Silver Star. When you heard about that, and that experience, and I believe it was raining the day it actually got pinned on you. So, what was that whole experience like to be able to know that one that people recognized the 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 work that you put in, the fact that you are now a hero for saving people, and that you are uh, awarded this medal? And then, what was it like when they were pinning it on you? Okay, yeah, I did not know that I was going to be getting the silver star, and actually, uh, when I was informed by the company commander. Um, Captain Theologist, who was an excellent company commander, he said that the first platoon uh, on the February 14th, Valentine's Day, when I had come up to help them get out of the ambush, because when I came up to their location, most of them were just trying to find cover and stay underneath. And so I was able to get up there and mainly get the squad leaders, everything directed as, as to what they had to do and how they had to get their men you know, positioned and fighting back. And uh, so the company commander had told me that it was the first platoon that had suggested I be nominated for that. Um, I will just mention this. My RTO, who was with me there the whole time, a young soldier, excellent soldier, always right by my side with the phone because he carried the phone. Like that day, he did not move up uh, to the first platoon and back to my position with me at all. At the end of the day, he apologized. He came to me and said there was just no way I could do it, that the bullets were just flying by your feet every time you were running up there and running back, and he was just kind of frozen spot, but that was fine. It, uh, so anyway, that so it was the uh, first platoon, my understanding, that uh, asked the company commander if I could be nominated for it. And then what about the experience when they're pinning it on you? I mean, is it one of those things that you that – you, 
really understand what's going on or is it just something that you kind of are going through because you're still in country, there's still a war going on? Any emotions or anything that you were experiencing when they're actually pinning the Silver Star on you? Not really because it probably happens in about 10 minutes all of a sudden because I never left the field for any ceremony or, or anything like that. So it's like should the battalion commander or brigade commander come out to the field that's when they, they want to be involved in pinning on medals or something like that. So all of a sudden they would call me up to the center of the perimeter where they were at, and the company commander would be there. And, and so they would, but when the colonel like that came out, the brigade commander or the battalion commander, they would usually have um, the press with them, you know, the army press, the uh, 25th Infantry Division press. So they'd probably have an article or something that they would write then, but then the so it was actually more for the commanding officer, I think, than the person receiving. Sometimes they had major ceremonies, probably, but in my case, it always just happened, you know, probably in a 10-minute span out in the field, and you were right back doing your thing. So you really didn't experience uh, any emotion over it. So February 14, 1968, Valentine's Day, you go through that battle. And, again, awarded the Silver Star for bravery. Also, uh, I believe you got the Purple Heart that day for the phosphorus burns. I did, yes. And so go back to you first arrive in country in Vietnam, uh, probably about early to mid-December, and you're in country, but you're not yet in the field. You end up going out into the field on December 16th, 1967, so just a couple months prior. Your first day you set boots on the ground, what happened? Okay, they flew me out by helicopter. Your first week in country, you kind of go through one-week orientation. They familiarize you with the country of Vietnam, the temperature, the enemy, just a number of things. And so then after, one, after I'd finished all those classes, they flew me out one morning by helicopter. Our unit was in a perimeter in a heavily wooded area close to the Cambodian border. So the helicopter drops me off. I meet the company commander. He assigns me initially with the 1st platoon because the 1st platoon leader had been out there now for some time and was going to become the executive officer, and so I was supposed to take over the 1st platoon. Within two hours or two and a half hours of me landing by helicopter, all of a sudden this little perimeter that uh, the battalion is probably, and it's more than a company, it's probably the battalion that was there, which would be three rifle companies out there, uh, was hit with small arms fire. And also, um, an RPG round happened. He hit the gas tank of an armored personnel carrier, carrier and exploded into a big ball of fire. And so within like two and a half hours of being in the field, I see these five, four or five soldiers come out of this APC all on fire. They're rolling on the ground. All their clothes are burned off. All their hair is burned off. Their arms and legs are in the air. They're just rolling on the ground. And that was my initial experience. Um, once the fire all died down and uh, the fire, little firefight stopped and later in the day, uh, there was one soldier that did not get out of the APC. And, of course, inside the APC it was just all a pile of ashes. And you could see his body in a fetal position. It was like a pile of ashes in the form of a body curled up in a fetal position. So that was my uh, first initiation um, to combat in Vietnam, just two hours. I'll just share something else real quick. Uh, If you have an infantry MOS, whether you're officer, enlisted men, and you serve in combat, you are awarded the Combat Infantryman's Badge. That's this badge right here, combat. You have to have an infantry OCS, uh, infantry MOS, and serve in combat in order to get that. Now, whether this story is true or not, but I've heard that any infantry, infantryman is awarded the combat infantryman's badge if they've been in a combat zone for one month, whether they've had combat or not, actually experienced a firefight or not. I don't know if that's true, but then I've heard that if you are awarded one and you have not been in a firefight, 
They don't call it that you've earned it, even though you may be in many firefights after that, and of course you have earned it. But if you're, if you're awarded a run after one month and you still, and have been in a firefight, then they say you've earned your combat infantryman's badge. Now, it so happened that later that day, because of what had happened, uh, the brigade commander came out there and he took that opportunity to, so after I being out there in just a few hours, I had the combat infantryman's badge pinned on me by a, the brigade commander, and I'm assuming it may have been because I earned it that quickly. They made a special uh, exception and had a ceremony to pin that on me my very first day out there. So your first day out there in a firefight, February 14th, two months later, firefight. Um, January 31st, prior to that Valentine's Day, was the Tet Offensive. Tet Offensive was the operation by the Viet Cong that really, like you said, attacked all these different places at one time. So it was a real huge offensive maneuver for the enemy, so to speak. Was daily life always... Was there always combat going on? I mean, was it day-to-day fighting, or were there long periods of time where you were just kind of down doing patrols? What was that daily life like for a soldier in Vietnam during that time? Because most of the time you were there was during the Tet Offensive. Prior to the Tet Offensive, we basically would run into three-man RPG teams. The Viet Cong would operate. They would have one rifleman, one soldier with an RPG, and a third one to carry ammo for the RPG and they would kind of do guerrilla warfare, uh, trying to catch us off guard and attack us and then get out of there as fast as they could. Uh, another thing, our, our major casualties before the Tet Offensive was from booby traps. They would set booby traps where they knew we would be patrolling, and, of course, soldiers would trip the traps or step on the mines, and, and that was most of our casualties were from booby traps. But after the Tet Offensive... All of a sudden, we were facing large North Vietnamese regular forces that had come down from the north, had infiltrated the south. Of course, there were tunnels all through the Coochie area, that, which was the home area of the 25th Infantry Division where I operated. So they had a lot of tunnel complex they could probably hide in. There were wooded areas where they could hide. Or they would go into all these villages and probably get the villagers to dig all these bunkers in the hedgerow complex. Because in a village in South Vietnam, like here you have a house and probably you have a fence around your lot. There they have hedgerow, hedgerows growing around your lot. And some of them can be real tall, real thick. But anyway, they would dig bunkers in the back of them with just little holes pointing out the front where they stick out their rifle. And as we advanced on the village, uh, you know, they could shoot us. And of course... Uh, they learned real quickly that if they waited until the U.S. troops advanced almost right up to the first hedgerow complex and then shot at us, we would have wounded and KIAs laying so close to the enemy front lines that we couldn't call in artillery or airstrikes. And so we would spend so much of the day just trying to, to be in a firefight and trying to get in a position where we could get our wounded and our KIAs out. Um, but so... After the Tet Offensive, we were in many firefights, it seemed like, every week. Because we were, first of all, the only measure of victory, it seemed like, in the Vietnam War was body count. So you didn't take land and hold land and then, you know, hold on to it. You just moved through areas, and the only thing that they seemed to want to count was body count. So you had to be in contact with the enemy in order to be killing the enemy. And so they, uh, you know, so it, but also I would, in aspect um, with us, the amount of fighting we did, I was in a mechanized outfit. We had armored personnel carriers. Now the straight leg outfits, they would fly a company or a platoon out to a certain area by helicopter, drop them off, but all the ammunition or equipment they had is what they could carry on their back. If you got in a firefight, the ammunition that you could carry, you could go through in 10 minutes. Or if you're careful, half an hour, 45 So not only were we out on our missions, sending us to where they thought the enemy was at, the straight-leg outfits who were out there without any vehicles to help carry ammunition and stuff, they would be getting in firefights. They would constantly need 
a mechanized outfit to get over there as quickly as they could to reinforce them. And so that's why we were uh, just constantly uh, in a lot of firefights after Tet Offensive. So it was a lot of heavy fighting. One of the things that you mentioned when you're fighting the enemy, uh, North Vietnamese, maybe even some people in the South that were uh, siding with the North, North Vietnamese, you've got these people shooting at you. And so obviously your natural inclination is to want to kill them back. Obviously your natural in- inclination is to maybe not like the people that you're fighting. And so when you're over there, you're dealing with, like you mentioned, a body count as the measure of victory. But also then you're talking about taking prisoners, prisoners of war. So when you capture somebody, obviously there was a, a thing that you had to do, go through, you know, where you take them and then eventually, I guess, send them back so they can be interrogated or questioned. But the way you treated the prisoners, you know, because you're dealing with somebody that was probably just shooting at you, so now the inclination is to want to mistreat them, you know, take out that, that, those emotions on them as a person. But you wouldn't allow that to happen. Why is that? that? Well, yeah, that's true. The men knew that in my platoon that if we could capture someone rather than shooting and killing them, that that's what we would do. And there were times when uh, we actually, with our APCs, our armed personnel carriers, we actually ran them down as they were trying to uh, get away, ran them down, but I mean ran right up to them. But rather than you know have them, our men just shooting at the enemy as they were running away, we, uh, you know, we could get up there much quicker as them because we were in those vehicles and we were able to capture them. And so our platoon captured more prisoners than any other platoon in the company I was in, or I think even, well, I don't know about other uh, companies. But, uh, but that was one of the reasons we did, because I kind of instructed the men. I wanted them, if we could capture and not kill, that's what we would do. And like you were saying, when someone's been shooting at you, you can be a little ticked off at them. And so when you get them, you want to rough them up a little bit. And what we would do, we would bind their hands. We would blindfold them. And then we would uh, just prepare them to send them back so that intelligence could interrogate them to get any um, you know information that might be useful as to enemy movement or enemy locations and so on. Well, when we would take them after we catch them to the armored personnel carrier, sometimes the guys would want to just throw them in. But we had them blindfolded, we had their hands bound, and if we would have done that, they could have banged their head against the metal seating or the radios in the uh, APCs or their shoulders or their knees. And so I made sure that none of that was done. So I tried to, uh, at all times, make sure that we once we captured someone, that we treated them you know, humanely. And one of the stories that you tell is a guy on a bike, and you just ran up to him. What was that like? That was one morning. We probably uh, had to leave our location at about 3.30 in the morning and go by foot to this one little village. And my mission was to cordon off the back of the village because come daylight, they were going to sweep through from the front, and I was supposed to cordon off the back so if any... Uh, enemy ran out the back, if there happened to be any in the village, that we would be there to, uh, you know, to catch them. So um, I come up to this road that circles kind of around behind the village. I look through my night goggles down the road, but of course it circles around to the left, so I can only see a little ways, and everything was clear. So I start bringing the men up, and I start going down this road, going to place them off on the far side of the road, so we could be facing the village and be ready come sunlight. And so I think I get like the first man placed, and then all of a sudden, here comes a, a guy on a bike, and an, well, there was three of them. One of them was on a bike, and the other two were like walking or trotting alongside him, but they just appeared out of the dark uh, so quickly. And my with my instinct, all I did, I ran up to the first guy, grabbed the rifle off his shoulder, grabbed him off the bike, the other two had taken off running, and so I shot at them as they were running, and uh, uh, and actually I could see the tracers go right through the back of of one of them, and we did find his body out and under a tree just a little ways away when daylight came. 
But then we saw a flip-flop from a, a shoe that they wore, like those rubber sandals, flip-flops. And we saw it laying on the road come daylight with the bullet hole through it. And sure enough, uh, in the morning, when they searched the village, they found actually a lady via Kong that had been shot in the foot hiding underneath a bed in one of the hooches. But uh, so that way, that day, I actually captured that North Vietnamese and his AK-47 rifle from right off his shoulder. What was it like dealing with the non-combatants in country? You know, just the the regular citizens that were there in Vietnam, and and I suppose some of them were uh, just wanting to live life, I guess. I don't know. What was it like just dealing with those? How was the reception by the American soldiers or uh, for the American soldiers to the civilians that are in Vietnam and just the Vietnamese people in general? Well, uh, we got along with them real well. Uh, they would bake French bread because uh, the French had occupied the country and they had the delicious French bread. As we go through villages, we would buy French bread off them. Uh, for some reason, they had Cokes and stuff too that you could buy off them. One guy bought a Coke once from off of one and it was just full of swamp water. So for some reason, they had able to remove the top of the Coke can, put, you know, and put swamp water in and, and get it sealed up so it just looked like it hadn't been tampered with. And But because we had sodas and stuff delivered to us anyway by the Army, we didn't have to do that. But our experience was, but naturally, when the North Vietnamese... Um, invaded the country in mass like they did after 68. And they would go into these villages, and I'm sure they were the ones that forced the villagers to dig these bunkers and all the hedgerows. And then here now the American army comes uh, up to their village, and we come online. And, of course, in Vietnam, with all the civilians around, it's a no-fire zone. So you can't shoot until you get shot at. So we're online advancing towards the village, all the villagers are running out of the village chasing their chickens, their cows, they're uh, carrying a rocking chair or their babies in their arms. So we know the North Vietnamese are dug in there, but we can't shoot until we're shot at first. Uh, and so then, like I told you, or mentioned earlier, they'll wait till we get up close. And then, of course, we're fighting all day there and, and all the shelling and stuff is messing up their homes. So you actually felt sorry for the South Vietnamese villagers um, that had to go through all that. Now, unfortunately, when it comes to war, there's going to be loss of life. Um, I've, through social media, one of the positive things of social media has been able to kind of connect with some of the people that knew you in Vietnam, guys that served under you. Um, they'd give a lot of feedback as to uh, when I'd post something, uh, they might comment on it, and then we'd have an exchange. Um, and so I know you always often talk about the men that you've served with, and we uh, connected with them through social media. But every year, there's always three guys that you talk about. Uh, is the three guys that you lost over there in country. Uh, could you just tell us a little bit about what your experience was like with them and what they were to the platoon and why year in and year out, many, many years later, you still honor them and recognize them every year? Yes. Um, thankfully, I only lost three men during the six months that I was rifle platoon leader. Sometimes platoons lost many more than that in one day. And then you know, losing more and more and other days that, that went by. So I'm very thankful, but still saddened, of course, that you lost three men. Uh, the first man I lost was, um, let me see, it was just after February 14th of 68, and it was my medic. Now, I had received some white phosphorus burns in my back on February 14th from the ambush that we got into, and two or three days later, I got some shrapnel in my leg, and so the day after that, I, I never left. Those were the only two times I was wounded, and I never left the field for either wound. I stayed right out there with my platoon. But when I got shrapnel in my leg just above my knee, I was limping so badly that uh, the following day and probably for a couple of days after that, my platoon sergeant took my job as platoon leader and because the platoon leader was always up with the fighting men. You were on line with the men. You were helping direct the fire and all that. The platoon sergeant was back a little further. He was responsible for getting the ammunition up to us, getting our wounded out, uh, things like that. 
so on the day that my medic was killed, uh, which was the 19th of February of 68, uh, I was back because I was probably got the shrapnel on my leg on the 17th. So then it was like a couple days later, and my platoon sergeant was up with the men. But my understanding, his name was Thomas Lobeck, my under, and he was a conscientious objector. He did not carry a rifle. But somebody had been shot in the platoon next to us, and he was over working, uh, giving aid to a wounded soldier over there when he was shot in the head and was killed. And that was our first. Then on the 24th of February, so that's only like five days later, um, the by helicopter they had said they had noticed enemy movement, they thought, along this riverbed. We were op- uh, operating in one area close by, and so the company commander gave me the order to take my platoon to go over to where that riverbed was and check the riverbed. And so we moved over there, and just as we approached the riverbed, uh, there was one tall rice dike about a waist high, um, you know, some like 20, 25 yards away from the dike that paralleled right along the riverbed, and so I lined up all my men along that dike facing the riverbed, and then I took a point man ahead of me. I went second, my RTO after me, and I took one other man, and we had to wade through water probably almost up to our waist from that dike until the dike right along the uh, riverbed. And there in front of us was thick, thick brush. You couldn't see the river yet. There was, I don't know what, how much of a distance from that dike to where the actual river was, but there was thick brush there. So the point man in front of me, who was probably four or five paces ahead of me, he jumps up on the dike and starts to his right along the top of the dike, parallel up with all this brush that's along the river. I jump up on the dike, take a couple of steps, and I hear like probably the loudest bang that I think I've ever heard. And I see the point man in front of me fall off the dike into the water. I see the blood come up. And so right away, I jump back down off the dike where I had just gotten up. And, of course, uh, my RTO and the other guy were trying to get back through that waist-high water back to where the other men are. But they were all lined up there, and the machine guns were positioned. So they opened fire right away then on all that brush area and consequently kept you know the heads down of the enemy shooting anymore. So we got back there. But anyway... Uh, that was one of the best soldiers that I had in my platoon. His name was Bruce Dent, um, just an excellent, excellent soldier. He was from uh, Williams, uh, Arizona, by the Grand Canyon area, and uh, he was one of our squad leaders, just an excellent soldier. Uh, but that was the second man killed. And then about another five days later, or a little more, on March 2nd, um, Charles Rayberger, who had only about two weeks left in country, and he had actually been back in base camp doing some work um, because he was short, and so they had moved him back so he didn't have to be out in the field right up until the day he went home. But he wanted to come back out and be out with the platoon. And so he came back out there. Now, on this particular day, we were out by a wooded area where uh, the North Vietnamese would hide and they had roan plows over in Vietnam, which would uh, cut down these trees. They would try to flatten these wooded areas uh, so that it could not be a place where the Viet Cong or the North Vietnamese could hide. And so our job was to sweep through this wooded area before the roan plows started going around it and chopping down all the trees. Um, so we started moving through. I had Charles Rayberger with the rear, bringing up the rear along with a couple other men. So he was like rear guard because I didn't want him out front. I wanted him in the back where he would be safer. Well, as it worked out, as we were moving through, we we were actually moving over some tunnel openings. And here after we had passed a tunnel opening, a North Vietnamese soldier comes up from the tunnel and looks and sees the rear guard approaching, fires one shot, and hits Charles Rayberger right in the stomach. And uh, and consequently, that was our 
uh, third uh, casualty that I had. But then the rest of the time, uh, until the middle of June, when I became mortar platoon leader, uh, we took no more KIAs in the third platoon. Now, every year on social media, you put something out there recognizing those guys that uh, you lost over there. So obviously, it's something that's gone with you all these years. But why is it that you remember them every year? Uh, let, let me use the words of Thomas Frame, who was in the Battle of Ben Cooey, and he was a squad leader with the 1st Platoon. And at one time, I heard him say, um, I think about these guys all the time, or you know, many days, most days. He said, that's because we knew these guys. They were important to us. One of the things that I've been able to get feedback on from from people that uh, were over there with you is they appreciate, they were actually thankful that they were under your command, that you were their uh, commanding officer over there because they felt that because of how you conducted yourself as a leader, as a lieutenant, that you kept them alive. Uh, They felt that like the way you did things, for example, if you had to go from point A to point B, you would take the route that was designated. It wasn't the easy way where you're walking down just the path and, and being nonchalant about it. Or if there was something that you thought was, um, you, you always, you were always on, you always had the guy on point. You always had your men in positions where it would, uh, increase their survival rate for getting out of there. Um, I remember, I think you were telling stories about how other guys after you had left would make references to, you know, Lieutenant Eden would never allow us to do this. And so I think that part of the reason why, um, the, the body count, so to speak, or the loss of life was so low was because the way that you conducted, the way you led your men and you kept them in a position to optimize their survival rate when they were over there. Well, I think that goes back to like in the beginning, I told you that I wanted to be go in the Army. I wanted to be in the infantry. I wanted to then found out that I could even be an officer in the infantry, and, and I wanted to go to Vietnam. So consequently, I wasn't just there uh, to get my time over with and get back. Uh, I think I tried to concentrate all the time on doing my job right. I tried to be tactically correct. I tried as much as I could. Naturally, in combat, you're going to have to take a lot of chances, uh, do a lot of things that, you know, where you're just taking a chance. Um, but, like, I, w- I would see some other officers who were very good officers, had great success. Uh, but tactically, I thought they did things that put the men at risk. But it's kind of like if you're a football coach and you're on the one-yard line, uh, first and goal from the one-yard line, uh, or fourth and goal, uh, you know, and you call a play. If it works, you're a hero. If you're not, you're a bum. It's kind of the same way with their tactics. So, like, if your tactics work, you know, you're good. But, uh, you know, so even if some I saw some things that I thought people would do that weren't tactically correct, but if it worked, you know, they, it was still turned out okay. But yeah, so no, I tried to, uh, you know, I tried to do my job that I thought was in the most correct way possible, and um, yeah. So a lot of times, and you know, uh, men will get careless. They'll get careless with their own safety. A lot of times over there, you think, oh, it might happen to the other guy, but it won't happen to me. But so I would be on my men all the time too. Not only try to tactically place them right, like if we're going on patrol, I would have the. Um, the point men out front, you know, have your flanks, guys trump, trumping through the heavy brush on the trump, not rather than everybody going down a path, you know, just for our own protection. And, yeah, so all that, I think, helped, um, you know, to try to do things tactically correct. Now, after you got uh, done with your tour of duty over in Vietnam, uh, you still were in the military. You were still had a, a service to provide. And so afterwards, you became a survivor, was a survivor assistant officer or a notifier. You basically had to go and notify people that a loved one had been lost in combat. What was that experience like? Okay, I was survivor assistance officer was my first job. I was assigned when I returned from Vietnam to Fort MacArthur in San Pedro, California. And uh, my first job was survivor assistance officer. However, a sergeant, or apparently two sergeants, were always the ones that went out initially and notified the family. That's the way it was set up there. And then after they did the initial notification, my job was to 
uh, follow up with the families, make sure they were aware of all the benefits that were available to them, uh, make sure I had the 21-gun salute, the folded flag, all that available. Whatever it was that they wanted, I attended all the funerals, made sure that everybody showed up that needed to show up uh, to perform whatever you know, part of the ceremony that they had requested that uh, they wanted done. And so I didn't do the initial announcement, but still, um, when you wore the uniform and you came, now, a lot of times it was um, more senior uh, Army people that had been in for some years. Um, that You were received very well by their families. But some of the young boys that had just been drafted, gone to Vietnam, uh, and if you wore the uniform, some of those families, yeah, it was kind of hard for them to... Uh, even want to really accept you too easily or readily. Having been in country, seeing the loss of life, uh, not only in your own platoon, but obviously the other platoons and other people, other soldiers there, does it give you a better compassion on these families despite their reception of you? Because you were there, you witnessed it, you saw it, and now you have an opportunity to provide the soldiers that lost their lives with the dignity of the burial, with the dignity of being honored for their loss of lives, for their ultimate sacrifice, because it's those types of people that is the reason why I, who haven't served in the military, haven't had need to, is I have the freedoms that I have today because of, first off, soldiers that like yourself that went and fought, but then also soldiers that went and fought and lost their lives. And so I would imagine having that experience of being over in country and actually witnessing it. Because when I see things, you know, and we see uh, obviously coming out of Afghanistan and we had, uh, you know, Gulf War One, Gulf War Two, and we see on TV these bodies coming home, to me it means something. But I really have nothing vested in it from the standpoint that I don't know what it's like to really be over there. I don't know what it's like to serve. I don't know what it's like to lose a loved one to war. And so for you having been over there and to be in that situation now to help those families kind of go through that process, I would imagine um, it's something that they probably didn't realize at the time what they had, but I would imagine it was something that was pretty significant for you to be able to be on that end of it to get those final resting and that final peace to the family for the ones that were lost. Actually, I kind of think because I had just been over there and when you're over there, you can't get all emotional over once all of a sudden someone loses their life. Uh, you have no time to grieve anyone over there. You, you have no time. You never say goodbye out there one day, one minute they're right there with you fighting, the next minute they're gone. Uh, you know, here when a school shooting or something they have, they might close to school for a few days. Over there, you just keep on doing what you're doing that night. You go out in an ambush again. So I... When I look back on it, after I had gotten through doing it, I thought that I was not a good pick to do it because for some reason, um, later on, or even like now, or even later on, had you been removed from it for a while, then I think you would appreciate the sacrifice that they made more uh, than c- coming right back from Vietnam. Then all of a sudden you're out there you know, with the families that lost, uh, I didn't think that I was or really probably did have the right attitude about it. I was probably too hardened to it immediately coming back from Vietnam. That was kind of my experience of what I thought. Now, maybe they thought I was okay. You know, I don't know. But in myself, I just, after I had been that survivor assistant officer, I kind of felt at the end, you know, I wonder if if I was right for this job, coming right back and doing it right away. I, was I thought maybe I did not have the compassion I should have had for him. So you're finished with your service, you're discharged from the military. What was transition life back to civilian life? What was that like? (laughs) All of a sudden, um, I happened to, I got a three months early out of Vietnam because I come to find out I had, they had sent me after officer candidate school to Panama for six months and it was some kind of an experiment because every two days I spent in Panama counted one day off my tour in Vietnam. So I got a three-month early out from Vietnam. So I was notified all of a sudden that I, I was going to be, they said ETS. When you left Vietnam, you ets out of uh, Vietnam. So I found out all of a sudden that, hey, I'm coming home. 
and I didn't have time to notify my parents or anything. I got back to the base camp because it's out in the field area uh, all the time. Got back to the base camp a few days before, took care of whatever I had to take care of, and I'm on an airplane coming home, land in Travis Air Force Base, uh, went over to San Francisco Airport, called home and got Dad on the telephone, told him I'm in San Francisco, I've got this flight out, and it's leaving like now. And Dad left home at that time from Pasadena, and I left San Francisco, and we arrived at L.A. International Airport at the same time, and all of a sudden I'm back. And now all of a sudden you're back here with um, people that have no idea what you've been through. Um, You can't really talk to anybody about it. Also, each of the soldiers, we went to Vietnam as replacements. So each one of us went individually. Wherever we were needed, we were placed for the time we were there. We come back individually. So it's not like we went as a unit where we were trained as a unit, we knew each other, we went as a unit, we come back as a unit. So you went by yourself, you came back by yourself, and so you never talked to anybody about anything. uh, Now, if I had had some close army, but the thing was, even over there, you didn't, now, probably some of the men um, that fought, you know, became good friends, and got names and addresses of some of their fellow soldiers. But kind of as a lieutenant, you kind of are not buddy-buddy with everybody in the platoon. You're like the leader. And so you're pretty much by yourself over there. You have the meetings each night with the company commander and the other platoon leaders, You know, but then you're back with your own platoon, but you're kind of by yourself. So it's not like you get phone numbers and addresses and contact people when you're back. Um, so, um, so all of a sudden you're back. You're out of it, it's all over, and that's it. And that's what really kind of made it hard because then 45 years later, 50 years later, when you're finally making contact because of social media and having computers and, and smartphones and everything, you're finally able to make contact with the men you served with. You've forgotten so much, and everything has become a blur. You know, So if you could have been in contact with somebody right away, you could have remembered events, you could have remembered uh things much better but yeah so it was just all of a sudden uh you know you went you, and then you come back and it's like almost it didn't happen you're just back looking for a job and going on with your life so you mentioned social media all these years later you get reconnected what's it been like reconnecting with the men that you served with over in vietnam oh yeah i think that's been that's why like a lot of people i'll hear them talk about uh you know to you know facebook or you know just all this technology, but yeah, like in my case, and for, and for the case like of his soldiers, it's just been a a real lifesaver to um, be able to reconnect. Otherwise, I would have never reconnected with any of them. But this way, we've gotten together. We've had some reunions. Just a quick example: that first December sixteen sixty seven, when I arrived in country, and I saw those four or five soldiers come out of that armored personnel carrier, all on fire. For all these years, I wondered if any one of them had ever made it or if they were all dead, and I had no way of knowing. But after I got a computer and stuff, and within these last, like, 15 years or so, and I made contact with some of them, uh, some of them and also found out that we had a 5th Infantry Regiment, you know, website where we could uh, meet people on and so on, I saw a posting, uh, email posting probably, uh, from a soldier named Bob Drake, and he talked about the injuries, the burns he had received on December 16th. So that was the first time that then I realized one of the soldiers had made it. And so I emailed him and told him my experience that day and was glad to have you know heard his name and all. And so then when I went to one of the reunions at a ranch in Texas uh, near San Antonio, uh, my wife and I, uh, your mother, <laughs> we arrived down there, and that night we went out to a steakhouse. And here I saw a bunch of soldiers over at one big booth, or a couple of booths, I guess it was, or tables, and I recognized my medic who was there. And, and so I went over while we were still waiting for our table, Ruth and I, my wife, I went over and just talked with them for a little while, not to all of them, and I didn't recognize most of them, but the ones I did recognize and I just talked to. Then I went back to 
where Ruth was to wait for our name to be called. Well, in the meantime, they had finished up and came to over where Ruth and I was standing in this one uh, because he had one soldier that had been sitting at that table because he had uh, been hearing, listening to me talk to the soldiers there. He knew who I was. So he comes up and says, uh, Stuart Edom, my name is Bob Drake. And, oh. Yeah. It's so I, uh, you know, met him for the first time. Wow. It's pretty amazing to think that through technology, through the advent of social media, being able to reconnect with uh, a lot of these people. I got to imagine that it's got to be therapeutic and, and closure. Because like you said, when you first came back from Vietnam, there was no closure. You just were here, and that was it. And now you've been able to have some closure on a lot of things. And I think that's probably a lot of therape- uh, therapeutic and probably healing for you as well to be able to reconnect. Oh, I think, yeah, it's it's been... It's been just great for all of us, and to uh, you know make contact with the men again, and been able to talk to them, and and just express you know your gratitude for their service. Because here's one thing that I noticed: uh, whether it was a black soldier from the inner city of Philadelphia, a Hispanic soldier from South Texas, a white soldier from the Ohio farm fields, all of them were excellent soldiers. The discipline, the courage, the daring, uh, you know, the obedience to uh, leadership and commands. I mean, it was just an exceptional experience, and they were just exceptional soldiers. So, yeah, to be able to reconnect with them has just been really great. Now, one of the things that you brought with us here is this. I want to try to bring it out a little bit to try to maybe help uh, people see can um, can you just kind of go through some of these things as to what they are as far as uh, obviously we see the silver star and we see the purple heart but um, I guess this right here being the silver star and the purple one below it the purple heart uh, but what are some of these uh, medals well first of all this is the tropical lightning patch the patch of the 25th infantry division the division I was assigned to in Vietnam this is a jungle expert badge that I earned in Panama. I went through the Jungle Expert School. Okay, the Combat Infantryman's Badge, which you have to be in the infantry and have been in combat to get. And then these are the ribbons that go above uh, the medals. So like the Silver Star, the Bronze Star, the Purple Heart, the National Defense Ribbon, the uh, Vietnam Campaign Ribbon, and the Vietnam Service Ribbon. This is a presidential citation um, for a battle that our unit was in. That's, that's a unit uh, ribbon for the whole unit that was in. Then down here is just your shooting uh, dur- during boot camp. The, you know you get qualify on the different weapons. My dog tags with a P thirty eight. P thirty eight. That's what you use to open sea rations. So as we kind of wrap things up here, I'll give you the final final word. Anything that uh, you'd like to share that we didn't touch on or anything that you'd like to just kind of convey as we kind of wrap things up here? Well, I'm very thankful for my that I had the opportunity to serve. Uh, I would have liked to have stayed in the Army. I, I enjoyed it so much. Um, right away when I went into basic, uh, I like a lot of the soldiers would grumble because we were going to go out on night operations or now go on ambushes, or now go on these patrols. I enjoyed all of it. I even enjoyed the um, KP, peeling potatoes early in the morning or scrubbing pots and pans. I, I liked uh, while well, I was in basic training, so I enjoyed all the training. I thought the Army, we received real good training, and I would like to have stayed in the Army, but of course, with the... Uh, no win policy we kind of had in Vietnam and just a matter of body count. Uh, you took a lot of chances. Uh, if because I was in six, if I had stayed in six months, I would have been back as a company commander. And um, I just felt that for the type of war they were fighting at the time, that um, it, you know it was too risky really to stay in. Uh, I was in favor of going because to Vietnam when I went the first time. Because in my mind, I was thinking, if the South Vietnamese people uh, want us to come and help so that they don't have to live under a communist you know, system, 
that I was willing to do that. And so uh, I appreciate uh, my my time in the military. I appreciate the men I had the opportunity to serve with. And um, I guess that's... Well, we'd like to thank you first off for your service and for... Uh uh, for the sacrifice and also for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. A real American hero. So we appreciate that. And for sharing, I know it's not easy sometimes for people to kind of reminisce and share our thoughts and talk about things uh, as dramatic as going through war, but we really appreciate it. And so uh, I'd like to thank you for being on the show. I'd like to thank you for listening. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Edom Rocks, E-I-D-E-M-R-O-C-K-S. The uh, show Insta, uh, Instagram page is TWO, Two Steps Ahead Podcast, uh, link tree, bio, link in the bio, and you can click on one of those, and it'll take you to some different options. But the main place to go if you want to uh, really connect with the show, RadioWarp.com. It's a website, Radio, W-A-R-P, RadioWarp.com. Just log on. You can watch the, the show with the video episodes. You can listen to the show. You can download it and take it with you on the go. And then there's a lot of other great content there as well. So RadioWarp.com. Again, Two Steps Head Podcast, encouraging you to take your passion Make it happen. Let yourself be great. Son Edom, my special guest today, my father, Lieutenant Stuart Edom. Again, thanks for listening. Do tell a friend, and we'll see you next time.